surpass it. The world record, we, we made it 97 last year, and this year we've really smashed it. Hello, hello, my gardening friends, and welcome to episode 11 from Pot and Cloche Garden Podcasts. It's me again, Joff Elphick, a gardener from Gloucestershire in England, and today I head to the foot of the Malvern Hills, where the RHS Autumn Show is taking place. I have to say I've only ever been to the Spring Show, but this later version has absolutely blown me away with its scale and organisation. It's a huge show in a stunning setting with plenty of space and the exhibitors range from everything gardening to beautiful artisan food producers, ducks, geese and I even saw some giant tortoises. Now if you think that waters down the horticultural aspects of the show, don't panic, there really is so much to see. I speak to a wide range of exhibitors at the show, all of which opened my eyes to their dedication and understanding of their chosen subject. I talk old lawnmowers, groundsmanship, allotments, peri pears, and have a great conversation with Felicity Weeks of Herefordshire Growing Point, who use horticultural therapy in their weekly gardening sessions. Let me quickly slip in a mention for my lovely sponsor, My Window Box, who supply a wide range of period style and modern window boxes in aluminium and steel with drop-in or freestanding troughs to match. Take a bit of time to have a look at their website, go to mywindowbox.com and bring the garden to your window. Let's get straight into the show where I talk Mr Budding, Ransoms, Human Power, Horsepower and Motorised Machines, all restored, loved and cherished by the old Lawnmower Club. Who'd have thought, Andrew? Uh, it's a bit, bit, bit unusual. There's, uh, there's a few of us up and down the country, but not, ma- not many as nutty as us. <laughs> when was it started? Uh, the Old Lawnmower Club's been in existence for uh, 30 years now. 30 years? Yeah. God, where, where have I been? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I mean, you've got lawnmowers here. I've seen one from the 1880s. Are there any earlier than that? Uh, the only there's well, there's one machine on the site which is a replica of an earlier machine. So there's a replica of an 1830, but a uh, true machine, 1830. But 1880 is about as early as we're going with the machines manufactured to date. Now, what little I know about lawnmowers is were they developed from the cloth trade? Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. They're developed by Edwin Budding down in Stroud. Yeah, I'm not who, far from there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Edwin Budding had recognised the machine that was uh, shearing the nap off cloth could be used for cutting grass. And it was a machine that he developed for the uh, upwardly coming middle classes who couldn't afford a gardener. So we're therefore going to have to cut the grass themselves. Yeah, now I noticed the, the one from the 1880s, I mean, the, the width of the blade is barely six inches. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, so, so, uh, the, the smaller machines that you see round and about would have, been, would have had their place uh, within any of the big gardens. So you'd have had the, the horse drawn or the pony mower would be doing the big wide areas. But because of the sweep of the pony mower, that then couldn't pick up on the small areas. You'd have a small area in the corner it couldn't get to. You got the Victorian knot gardens, very very intricate gardens, uh, and then, so these smaller machines would have had their place for doing where the pony mower couldn't get, and the intricate knot gardens and things like that. Yeah. So we've had human power, horsepower. When does petrol power come in? Uh, motor mowers first introduced in 1902. Uh, so Ransom's Ipswich were the first to to develop a successful machine. Uh, was a, a few trials with steam just before that but steam never really took off so 1902 Ransoms came in with motor mowers uh, and then they re- developed and probably really took off between first and second world war ah, that's interesting now Ransoms a lot of people may have heard of but you mentioned budding are there, is there a budding lawnmower 
Uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, sorry, uh, there are, I think, five or six replicas, but original Straub Museum have a couple of originals. Uh, original, uh, one original in the Science Museum and Ransoms of Ipswich have got an original. Yeah. Now, uh, about a year ago, I, there was a programme on television where James May stripped down and rebuilt a... Suffolk... Say so, Suffolk Punch. That's it, yes. yes. Yeah, I, well, I couldn't remember the name. That, that, that was quite interesting, wasn't it? And I, I think one of the gardens that look after, they've still got a Suffolk Punch in the back of the shed. <laughs> uh, yeah, Suffolk Punch. I mean, Suffolk were a mass, mass manufacturer. They made uh, hundreds of thousands of machines. Uh, there are still quite a number out there. It's an ideal entry-level machine for people who are just coming into the hobby uh, because spares are still available, things like that. And so it's a nice entry-level machine. And you can probably pick one up at the local tip um, or from internet auction places like that for five and ten pound to go okay well that's answered my question <laughs> will i get 50 quid for mine in the shed po- possibly not hang on to it for a few more years <laughs> <laughs> i will i will well thank you very much how can people get hold of you uh so we've got a web best way through the website www.oldlawnworkclub.co.uk yeah. um or see us at events like this various steam rallies up and down the country and can people join absolutely of course yeah yeah we're new 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 members are welcome you don't have to have a lawnmower to be uh to, to join us just uh, you're being enthusiastic about them have an interest and what's that going to cost them uh i believe we're 10 pound a year bargain absolutely brilliant thanks for your time okay thank you thank you oh, okay uh so one more thing <laughs> uh yeah uh, also uh, recommend the woburn abbey garden show which is the held on the last full weekend of june each year uh is re- very quickly becoming recognized as the gardener's garden show uh more about the plants and gardens than it is about the garden furniture the garden sheds and the jacuzzis yeah brilliant thanks for that little uh, postscript thanks <laughs> okay thank you Next, groundsmanship. It's a skilled area of horticulture that many of us know about but don't specialise in. Mark Savagar tells me about the services offered by the Institute of Groundsmanship. Yes, well, the Institute of Groundsmanship is for groundsmen to work all over the country on football pitches, uh, cricket pitches, bowls, greens, and it's an organisation where they can seek help for training or um, to promote their, their, their future plans, whether they want to move on in jobs, etc., we do a, a large exhibition each year, Soltex, at uh, the NEC, where machinery is on show that uh, people can come across and uh, look at machinery or talk to people about um, things that are going on within the industry. So, yeah, we're widespread. We, we cover a lot of areas, even to um, some of our members are in horse racing on horse grounds, so they, um, they can um, um, find out information about ground care equipment and materials that are used, fertilizer, seed, etc. So within the IOG, there's a big umbrella of um, consultants or people with vast amounts of um, uh, experience and knowledge. For example, the, the head groundsman at um, Wimbledon is a member of the IOG, so we've had a big tie-up with uh, uh, Wimbledon events over the years. And, so, so go and, see that. and do you offer training? Yes, we've got training courses for cricket groundsmen, bowls groundsmen, and winter sports as well. Artificial pitches have become very uh, common now, so there are training courses for, for guys who need to look after such pitches. Yeah, I know, even, even artificial pitches still have moss on them, don't they? They certainly do, <laughs> and they need cleaning and, and looking after, so uh, yes, there so, is a So primarily, I suppose, sports services, but would um, gardeners who, who perhaps maintain large estates be be interested? Yes, it would certainly. We get a lot of people coming along to, uh, to today on the stand we try and offer free lawn advice to, to domestic um, you know, people who've got lawns but yeah great uh, state uh, gardeners can come along and um, you know, we've got members that are perhaps in, in those areas so uh, yeah they can gain a lot within the, uh, the organisation really.
So is it an institute you can join on an annual basis? Yes, indeed. There are certain levels of, um, from student uh, membership up to uh, full membership, associate membership, or the, uh, the, the company um, membership, you know, large organisations can move. But yeah, there's individual organisation. Um, and what do prices start at? What sort of range? Membership, I think at the moment, is around about £100, I think. Um, but student membership is a lot lower. And then uh, it goes up sort of slowly, you know. but it can be found on the website what the um, what, what the membership is. Well, that was my next question. Where can people find you? Yeah, the Institute of Grangemanship website. There's lots of information there. Our big show is coming up in November at Soltex and the NEC, so there's a big um, uh, amount of information on that on the website, or joining or training courses that are held throughout the country. Um, all the information is there on the website. Right, and the website address? Yeah, it's the, just the Institute of Grangemanship. You have to put that in and it'll come up with that. Brilliant. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Allotments are hugely popular, but did you know there's a National Allotment Society? You can join where you'll benefit from advice, insurance, and a quarterly magazine. I asked Colin Bedford to tell me all about it. Right. Well, it goes back over 100 years uh, and it was formed in order to protect allotments. So it's got around about 120,000 members now. And I don't know how many different sites it has that are associated with it. But it's there to help allotmenteers. It's also there to support allotments because there have been times when um, councils try to sell off allotments and a large number of allotments are actually protected by, by law. So we do have a legal representative who will support an association if they're under under threat yeah. but it, in the main it's about the benefits that we give to to members see discount schemes insurance and, and yes, now like i noticed that. that so you have a um an arrangement with with king seeds i think isn't it that, that's right king seeds produce a catalogue specifically for us where the um seeds are discounted by 40 percent compared to their normal price that they they sell I know I've used King Seeds before when I was requiring seeds on a slightly larger scale because they certainly, to the trade, I was buying them either in 5 gram, 10 gram, 20 gram and so on. So they're always very generous packets. Yes, they are very large horticultural supply. Yes. I noticed in one of your leaflets you you have an advisor as well. So if anybody has a query, they can contact you, can they? Yes, he's not somebody that's um, permanently with the uh, association, but they can leave online requests. we often bring them along to the shows, but he's not here to, today. But, yes. um, in particular, the Gardeners World one that we do, we, we have a, uh, a table where people can just come along, ask questions about how to grow things or if they've got problems with diseases or, or whatever. How can people contact you if they want to find out more? We've got a website, which is nsalg.org.uk. Okay, and I noticed uh, it's pretty reasonable to join, isn't it? If you join as part of an association, it's £3 per member. If you join as an individual, then it's £24 per year. Yeah, I mean, that's very reasonable, isn't it? it is. Yeah. You get a quarterly magazine for that as, as well and support. Well, that's amazing. Well, thank you, Colin. Thanks for your time. As I've already mentioned, Herefordshire Growing Point offer therapeutic gardening from a number of locations in the UK. Felicity Weeks introduces me to the charity and talks me through the amazing work that's carried out by them. 
Hi, Felicity. Hi, Geoff. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, we've met at last. Uh, we didn't realise we knew each other, did we, <laughs> no, until about a minute ago. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. hello. Felicity, the Herefordshire Growing Point, can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, Herefordshire Growing Point is a well-established charity based out of Home Lacey. It originated from an idea of dis- a disabled lady gardener who wanted to continue to garden, and she set that up at Home Lacey College, and then we became separate from them but still on their site with the demonstration garden there. I've only been with the organisation for about six or seven years um, and there are a lot of participants including a gentleman who's sitting just there who come out to Home Lacey and work in the demonstration garden and do all their gardening and growing there. We have a polytunnel, raised beds and so forth. Uh, And then there are other tutors uh, like myself who go out to daycare centres, residential homes, gardening groups, um, residents organisations and um, work with those participants in their own settings. So what you can see around you is a garden that is put together from lots of different people's ideas um, with lots of different contributions from those people. So um, for example one of our wheelchair bound gentlemen has painted all those purple cobbles um, for for the garden. Um, One of my groups have grown the um, compact aubergines Um, another group have planted sunflowers in their own garden but also planted sunflowers in pots to be brought here Um, lots of different um, nursing homes and and residence groups have decorated wellingtons and grown plants and planted them up Um, over here we have um, an area which shows some of the um, adapted tools and things that we might use um, to help facilitate people in their garden. There's some fantastic wheeled um, workbenches, aren't there? Yes, those have been produced by a gentleman who approached us and um, he has brought those along to the show for us and put those on display so that people can see and and, and he's provided those for us at Home Lacey so that we can use them with our participants. So that's shows some of the adaptations that we might use. We also have um, some of the long-handled and adapted tools to help people. Uh, And then we have some of the crafts and other plant-based but not plant-growing activities that we include in our autumn shows. So we have dried flowers that uh, have been arranged, corn dollies, vegetable animals, miniature scarecrows made from potatoes. All these different things have been produced by our participants and are part of um, what we do at Growing Point. In the garden, there's various signposts with right. West Eaton, Newstead, Holmer Manor. What do they refer to? Right. All these signposts, well, there are four signposts and almost 40 different arms, and each one of those is an organisation within Herefordshire that we work with. So there will be nursing homes, there will be sheltered accommodations, there will be different groups groups and everyone is represented on a signpost so that um, people can see how many different people we work with and the range of different people we work with because we work with um, from young people in special schools to older people with dementias uh, and everybody in between so people who are physically able but perhaps um, have other impairments um, or people who have physical impairments and therefore need support in, in being able to continue to garden or to take on gardening if it's something new to them but um, we do work with a lot of people who have been keen gardeners and maybe have an acquired brain injury or have a visual impairment or um, have just become older and more uh, infirm and therefore find it more difficult to um, access gardening and we support everybody in being able to garden and grow and enjoy their produce. There's the young gentleman's 
pumpkin here. Um, the, the lettuces in some of the cuff crutches um, were grown by a visually impaired lady at home, Lacey. The nasturtiums were grown by some of the nursing homes. The parsley peas were grown by a lunch club. Um, there's, uh, the, the bunny's tail grass, that was grown by some ladies with um, dementias. Um, so we've got a wide, wide range of, of different participants inputting into the garden. Now, this must require quite a lot of specialist help, which to me sounds very expensive. How do you pay for all this? Um, there is a lot of fundraising that goes on. Um, we rely on a lot of trusts and a lot of um, charitable funding. Um, there are private donations and then we have a couple of fundraisers a, a year as well. But we do rely very heavily on um, funding, uh, voluntary funding from the public. And are there any other ways people can, people can help? I mean, you here on a voluntary basis? I'm here on a voluntary yes. basis today. Yes. I've been here. I was paid some hours to coordinate the, the garden, the whole pro project of the garden. However, um, every hour I've spent on the showground has been on a voluntary basis, um, and so has my husband, and so has everybody else who's been on on the showground. So there are numerous hours, um, at least sort of 40, 30, 40 hours a day voluntary hours going into this garden and we've been coming onto site for two weeks now to, to make sure that everything's gradually being put into place because we can't afford to employ somebody to do this for us. This is all being done by volunteers, um, every uh, either volunteers or by participants supported by volunteers, which is the really, really important thing. Now, if people like what they've heard, how can they contact you? We have a website growingpoint.org.uk we have a Facebook page um, if you search for Herefordshire Growing Point 1 and we also have a telephone number which is 07816 257 983 or by post at Home Lacey Campus um, HR2 6LL Great, well that's pretty comprehensive Thank you. Thank you very much, Felicity. Thank you for your Not time. Not Thank you for yours. Well, the sun's come out now. You nearly, you're in danger of losing the garden about two minutes ago, weren't you? The high winds, I think, are the, are the real problem. We have some banners and our scarecrows um, could possibly take off. So, uh, yes, the, the, <laughs> it's looking lovely now. The, the wind yeah. has dropped slightly and the sun is out, Geoff, so it's going to be a lovely show. Brilliant. Well, enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next, I loved talking to Jim Chapman, who's the National Collection Holder of Perry Pears in Gloucestershire. His knowledge of the subject was endless, and his huge display of 130 different varieties of these ancient fruits caught my eye from the other end of the marquee. I've been stopped in my tracks by 113 Perry Pears. Is that yes, right, Jim? That's it, that's it. The world record, we, we made it 97 last year, and this year we've really smashed it <laughs> it's amazing and uh, so there's 113 here does that mean there may well be more out there there's certainly some more out there yes it's this oh any really any pair can make perry but only a number of pairs make good perry and so we have to assess whether they're making good ones uh, good perry or not yes now, and that is the definition of it <laughs> oh i see yes now so you've got the national collection of Perry pears, which are held at the Hartbury Orchard, is that correct? That's it, Hartbury Orchard Centre, and we basically supply 
uh, graft wood so that people can propagate it for themselves for their local villages or whatever it happens to be. Oh, I see. Now, there's a little bit of history on the front shelf, isn't there? Can yeah. we have a quick look at that? Yes. So, what have we got here? We, we've got here the basic wild pear, the Pyrrhus communis. That was the one that um, originally came to this country ooh, hundreds or thousands of years ago. Um, they started selecting it just locally here around uh, May Hill, in fact. Um, and the best of these wild pears, or probably better to call them feral pears <laughs> if you're technical, made, they found made a good perry and so they started naming them. And the first one ever named is Barland, which is after Bosbury Village. It's a field in Bosbury Village. Is, is that Gloucestershire? Uh, that's in just over into Herefordshire. Um, it's all around the Gloucester-Hereford borders, these were. And uh, then from then on, the pears gradually bred and they were always breeding them a little bit bigger because that's rather easier to pick up from the ground. The Barland, as you say, was one of the, well, it was the first one to be named. Yeah. And I mean, that was named, what, around 1650? That's it. So yes. everything we see on the other shelves has developed since then or been... Have they, have they been bred or have they been chosen from no, they, stock that's been spotted growing? They Initially, they, none of them were bred. They were just found in the wild wood. Uh, what I call the shadow orchard, and selected from there and then planted up and given the name, which is why so many villages have their own pear, because they, they selected the one that suited their soil and suited their climates, and uh, those became the village pear. Yes, now the names are amazing. I mean, I've seen one called Swan's Egg, there's Felix, there's Flaky Bark, New Meadow. I mean, I could go on. So they are generally named after perhaps the person that found them or perhaps where they've come from? Yes, it's, it's usually either such as Blakeney Red after the village of Blakeney where it was found or after the person who owned the farm which they were found. Uh, one or two of them have got uh, stranger names which um, for some other reason it's the owner of the orchard where it's growing has the chance to name it. Um, so Old Home is named after the old home. <laughs> Are there still commercial peri-pear orchards in, in, in operation? Yeah, yeah. There are most of the attractive peri-pear orchards with the tall trees in them are generally not used commercially, or they can be by craft producers. But they do plant them now on bush rootstocks and are very much a commercial harvest by people like Westerns and... Uh, those and they can go along and shake the tree and pick them up with the machinery um, rather than the old backbreaking task of picking up these tiny little things by hand. Yes, now dare I ask, uh, is there a favourite? Is it possible to have a favourite? Well, for me, it has to be the Hartbury Green because I uh, the whole collection is in Hartbury, which is once described as making a perry so alcoholic as to be inflammable. Um, I've yet to achieve that. <laughs> But, yeah, of the others, uh, Winnell's Longdon is always a popular one. Henry Huffcap is a popular one. There, you could list about ten that are um, make very good perry. But the reason, for, the reason for our existence is there are so many other varieties which nobody ever makes in perry, I haven't made into perry, and they may well make exceptional perry. And so we've got a, a nice task... Um, rather enjoyable task of making all of them into a single perry 
and um, tasting it. So people must still be coming to you with perries that they found on their farm or on their land and saying, yeah. what is this? This year we have named about eight pear, um, pears which were unnamed. I won't say were never used until now, but the name probably has been lost because it's known by the farmer who um, bred it or found it. But if he died without passing on that name to anyone else, um, then it's now nameless. We go ahead, we DNA them all, so we just know it doesn't match any other pair. And just recently, we've taken the DNA right across Europe, so we could say it doesn't match any of the European pairs either. Um, and then, yes, the owner can give it its name. Um, so, Barland, 1650, are people still breeding peri pears? I mean, is there a modern variety? Or is that all relative? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, none have been deliberately bred, to my knowledge, for quite some time. Um, they are still found, uh, but there isn't the market for anyone to plant 2,000 seedlings and eventually select one of them as happens to be a pair of quality for making perry. So it is all just chance now. Maybe the time will come when we deliberately start breeding peri pears as they breed cider apples, but not at present. So we're in Worcestershire at the moment. We are in Worcestershire, aren't we? Not in Warwickshire. Yes, yes Worcestershire. Just. <laughs> um, there's sort of the, the heart of orchard country, if you like. Yeah. How far do these range? It's Gloucestershire, Herefordshire, Worcestershire, Monmouthshire. And then after that, you're very much on the borders of making perry. Uh, Warwickshire has a sort of quite interesting, uh, where they mix crab apples um, and dessert pears, I think, to make a perry type drink. But the real perry is made in this heartland of the four counties. Um, we generally call it the three counties, but Monmouthshire has as much claim to being a perry county as any of the other three. Yes, now you did mention Europe, so does a little bit of uh, perry, perry yep. making go on, um, go on over there? Certainly, if you go to um, Austria, South Germany, that area around Lake Constance. Um, there's a lot of perry made there, but most of the perry is then uh, on the journey to make schnapps having been distilled. There are not so many that make uh, a perry and keep it as perry. So pears are used. They will also use, um, as well as Pyrrhus communis, which is the basis of all our perry pears, Pyrrhus nivalis, which is a snow pear, which is a completely different species of pear. Um, so it's not limited to the Pyrrhus communis. Um, there's Pyrrhus parasta, which will make a perry. Uh, but in this country, it's all Pyrrhus communis. Can people come and look at the orchard at all? The orchard is always open. Uh, the orchard centre is only open if somebody happens to be there. It's basically a working centre for making perry, and that's running courses. But the orchards, people wander around 365 days a year. And where can people buy perry if they want to? Um, they can buy it at the centre, but in the main, it's the sort of village shops around or chosen events like this. If they want to buy it from us, they can sort of... If they happen to catch anyone at the orchard centre, we're always very willing to sell it. But we don't have a shop where people sort of sit all day and hope that we'll get a customer, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> if people want to contact you, how can they get in touch? Um, the, um, the National Perry Pear Centre has a website, and also Hartbury Heritage Trust, which is the charity that actually owns the centre, has its own website. 
and there's the usual facility there to send in inquiries, ask further information, that sort of thing. Do you know what the website address is, or should they just Google it? Um, it it's, uh, it's National Peripair Centre, yeah. so <laughs> it's um, dot org or whatever it is but uh, if you just google national peri pair center that'll be it that's super well jim thank you very much for your time it's absolutely fascinating thank you thank you jim i'll never pass a tree in a hedgerow again without just checking that really was an amazing sight if you're passing through gloucestershire do pop into the orchard and say hello right i haven't recorded a product review for a few episodes but i really must let you know about a book that i received recently I'm mentioning it because for me it's the perfect book on wildlife ponds and that book is called The Wildlife Pond Book and it's written by Jules Howard and it's just been published by Bloomsbury. It'll set you back $16.99 or $23 in the States and it's a book I wish I had about 45 years ago. I used to love pond or river dipping. I used to make nets out of circles of wire with old tights stretched over them and I would introduce a lot of my finds into an aquarium that I'd set up in my bedroom and in that I'd had small pike, crayfish, sticklebacks, bullheads or snotty dogs as we used to call them um, and in fact that's where I first learnt that uh, crayfish shed their skins to enable their new skins to enlarge. So the book comprises about 160 pages and that's six chapters and there's an introduction that explains what makes ponds so special and their history. Award-winning journalist Kate Bradbury adds her seal of approval at the start in a foreword and extols the virtue of ponds and the pleasure she's derived from her own pond at home. In the introduction, the different types of natural ponds are described from Oxbow Lakes to pingos, which are formed by ice, and uh, beaver ponds, small ephemeral ponds caused by footprints, uh, historically by, dinosaur, by dinosaurs. Um, Man-made ponds get a mention too, um, village ponds, dew ponds, fish ponds, brick pits and mill ponds. Potential modern uses of ponds are also discussed uh, for the 20th century and that includes things like battery cooling, carbon capture and biofiltration. The only pond not mentioned as far as I could see was the modern trend towards swimming ponds. These unheated, often quite deep but beautifully constructed ponds, usually accompanied by a deck or a diving platform and uh, combined also with a, an efficient filtration system. Chapter 1 talks about the practicalities with size, materials, shape and filtration covered. Chapters 2, 3 and 4 go into quite some detail from preparing to managing and planting up your pond. Chapter 5 is fascinating for those who like to study the natural fauna that can arrive unassisted into your pond. From these tiny microscopic indestructible colonisers like tardigrades to rat-tail maggots, water fleas and caddisflies, they're all there in full comprehensive detail. The final chapter encourages you to explore your pond with a net, camera traps and moth traps. Another section runs through the various methods of seeing things close up, different types of microscope, boroscopes and handheld loops. Check out the book, that's the Wildlife Pond Book and that's by Jules Howard. Well, thank you for everybody who took time to talk to me. Another thank you to my lovely sponsors, mywinnerbox.com. And a big thank you to you for making it once again to the end. In the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your box be free of blight, and your days spent relaxing under the shade of a willow, a grass stem in your mouth, or the hum of insects 
and the clatter of dragonfly wings fill the air around you. I'll see you next time.